This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good afternoon. I'm Roshan Kunison and welcome to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. At the start of the year, Singapore-based business processing outsourcing firm TDCX kick-started 2024 with the announcement that its founder and CEO essentially wanted to delist the New York Stock Exchange-listed company and take it private again. Founder, CEO and Executive Chairman Lauren Junik owns 86% of TDCX's outstanding shares and represents around 98% of aggregate voting power and has proposed to acquire the remaining shares that he doesn't own at $6.60 per share, that is, in USD. This represents a 36% premium to the closing price before the announcement was made, but is around 63% below the $18 per share that TDCX was priced at when the company went public just over two years ago. Today, Enterprise explores the potential reasons behind this proposed privatization, as well as the potential implication of the deal with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia. Tech in Asia is a Singapore and Jakarta-based technology news website covering topics on startups and innovation in Asia. We will also examine how the firm compares to other public-listed Southeast Asian tech companies that have recently listed in the last few years and whether this signals more potential privatization of them. If you have any thoughts, you can WhatsApp us on our U-Mobile number at 018-789-8899 or you can always reach us on X at BFM Radio. Simon, welcome to the show. Can you hear me loud and clear? Hi, Roshan. Yes, I can. Thank you for having me. Uh, Pleasure to speak to you as always, Simon. Uh, I know you have a particular focus on the public listed side of the Southeast Asian tech sector. So it's going to be interesting to get your thoughts and more importantly, your analysis on what's going on or what's behind the scenes here. Um, First off, maybe you can give us a little bit of a primer. What can you tell us about the motivations behind TCX's CEO and founder wanting to privatize the company and essentially, uh, especially given that it only listed about two years ago? Yeah. Uh, Yes, Roshan, thank you. So I will try and get into Mr. Junique's head. Obviously, I (laughs) get to the actual reasons, but privatizations typically occur for a fixed number of reasons, right? And this could be whether they are for tech companies or old school property companies listed in Singapore and Malaysia. We've had so many of those as well. In Singapore, for example, they're privatized over the years and the reasons are always the same, right? So number one, the stock is trading below what the overall thinks it's it's intrinsic value. And of course, there can be a wide range of what an intrinsic value is. No one, I think, actually knows. But um, as an insider, you know, he has an idea that, hey, my company is worth a lot more than what the market is giving it value to. So if I can pay a, a premium to the trading price, but still below the intrinsic value, and take the company private, I can benefit from any future growth in the value of the company, right? So that's number one. Number two is usually when companies have enough cash flow to support their operations internally, they don't need external funding. So there's really no need to continue having a listing, right? So companies often come to the exchange and they go public because they want to raise money from public shareholders because they have plans to expand. Um, but in this case, and this is the case with TDCX, if you look at the cash flow 
from its own operations, it actually can support itself, right? So if you go private, you don't have to deal with all your pesky analysts. <laughs> you don't have to deal with other, other shareholders. You can just concentrate on running the company. So another reason uh, that many companies go private is that the trading volumes are low, right? So it's hard to exit if you are a shareholder in the company. Typically, you think that you have publicly listed shares, you can just sell them easily. And I think for most of us retail investors, that is the case because we don't own a large number of shares in the company. But if you are a large institutional shareholder and you have a large shareholding in the company, often the low trading volume means that it can be quite hard to actually get the volume you need to actually sell your shares, right? So if you look at TDCX's trading volumes in the US where it's listed, right? And you compare it to Grab and see it's much lower. So just to give you an idea, um, the data shows that the average volume uh, over three months, um, this is daily trading volume over a three-month period, 19 million for Grab, 9 million for C. TDCX, 200,000. Wow, right? that's a big difference. Much lower, much more illiquid. So in that sense, um, why have why have the listing? And, you know, finally, there there's um, a fourth reason. Often companies that go private want to do so because um, they may want to restructure the company and it makes sense to do that away from the eye of the public market, right? Because when you restructure a company, um, you may incur, you know, one-off costs or short-term, take short-term hits to your revenue. And so often equity analysts tend not to be able to see the value in that kind of thing, you know, because it may only accrue over a longer term. And so in TDX's case, um, some, of, some of the equity research analysts who have covered it have said that it may face a, a threat from generative AI, right? The business of BPO may face a threat. So maybe, right? Uh, I'm not saying that this is the case, but maybe the chance to restructure the business outside of the public eye is another factor. So these are the four reasons I think um, might, that might be going through Mr. Janik's um, um, head when he decided to make this offer. Uh, you know, the volumes uh, point that you made is really interesting, considering that he has 86% of the shares. Um, it would make it very difficult to dispose of that even if you want to do, because you need buyers essentially to come in for that, right? Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the longer term. Uh, Simon, are there any, I, I know you made the property company comparison there, but are there any uh, other examples that are more comparable that come to mind? Yes. So, um... I want to be cheeky and <laughs> Michael Dell's privatization of mm. Dell years ago, but I think we're dealing with a very different scale of company, right? Yeah. But you know, just uh, almost as a point of interest for your listeners, right? If you just go Google Michael Dell privatization, there's this false article that talks about how much he made from that deal because, you know, he did it when interest rates were low. He could borrow a lot of money. He went in with a company called Silver Lake, which is a private equity firm that specializes in tech investments. And so they took over Dell and, you know, they restructured it in the private markets. And then it was relisted again a few years later. And Michael Dell made a killing, a killing from that, you know, from that deal as if he wasn't rich enough already. <laughs> I, you know, uh, if your readers are interested, they can go and um, look for those articles. Uh, but, you know, I think more realistically, uh, I was thinking about this, right? Uh, one of the companies that, um, was listed in Hong Kong, a Singapore company as well called Razer. I don't know if you heard of it. They make like computer appliances for gaming. Yes. So, I guess tech hardware company, right? It was founded by a Singaporean called Tan Min Liang. And basically, you know, after a few years, 
Um, I think they were listed for longer than TVPX, but not that long of a life in public as well. After a few years, um, Tan Ming Liang and another a non-executive director, basically together they own 57% of Razor. And so they decided to take Razor private, right? And they did the deal with CVC Capital Partners, which is a private equity firm. Now, um, some of the statistics are quite interesting. So there's really quite a few similarities, right? Um, so when, um, unlike in this case, uh, they had basically caught a market halt to trading quite a while before the actual like announcement was made. But they called a market halt to say that there were talks to announce that, you know, um, there were conversations going on. So if you take that as the date of, you know, the, 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 the price at that date, the offer was actually at a 44% premium mm. to what the shares were trading off as of that date. Um, and Razor's shares, right, actually debuted uh, in Hong Kong at 388 Hong Kong dollars. So three Hong Kong dollars, eight cents. And then they went up to about four. But for then they declined and they were actually, you know, uh, trading at 150 plus. The take private was at 282. So in that sense, right, like in this case, um, it's above the trading price or recently, but there will be many investors who invested at the IPO or who invested at, mm, you know, points after that that would actually have lost money, right? Because you take five at 282, you sell your shares at 282, that's it. So if you look at Razor as well, what were the reasons? They said low participation from institutional investors, prolonged low trading liquidity, right? These are the usual reasons. Who knows? Like, like, uh, it may actually be, you know, some other considerations, right? I think usually they won't say, they won't say, oh, we think we can get a really good deal from this. And so that's why we're doing it. Uh, so these are the typical stock reasons that they they fight. Um, so if you look at this deal, they eventually did go private, right? And um, 94% of what they termed disinterested shareholders actually voted for the privatization. Um, the one difference that I would point out between TDCX and Razor is that um, um, at the point the TDCX um, deal so far is a preliminary one in the sense that he hasn't actually made a formal offer yet. He said that like he will, you know, may make an offer in the future. Mm. Um, at that point, we'll want to see whether the amount offered is actually his final um, price. Because usually what uh, some offers do is that they will start with a certain amount and then they negotiate, right? And then they raise it a little bit. Whereas in Razor's case, right, when the announcement came out, they said, look, this price that we're offering, right, is the final price and it will not be increased. So you take it or you leave it. Um, I would be interested to see when the offer for TDCX comes out, whether there's similar language, take it or leave it, this is the final price. Or if they keep quiet on that, then there may be room for negotiating a higher price for shareholders. Simon, we've got to go into a few messages when we come back. We'll talk a little bit about the potential implication to shareholders in a parallel to that Razor comparison you gave us, as well as any indications of how whether we know how this will be financed. Folks, you're listening to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. Today, Enterprise Explores, the proposed privatization of TDCX with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia. Among other things, we're getting into the possible reasons and implications, but we'll also take a look at how other firms compare in the public listed Southeast Asian tech market, as well as whether this potentially signals more privatizations ahead. I'm Roshan Kanazan. We'll be back in just a bit, so keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. Bold, fearless Malaysians, BFM 89.9.
the business station. BFM 89.9, welcome back to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. I'm Roshan Kunison. Singapore-based and New York Stock Exchange-listed TDCX kick-started 2024 with the announcement that its founder and CEO wants to take the company private again by acquiring all shares that he doesn't own at a proposed price of $6.60 per share. That represented a 36% premium to the closing price before the announcement was made. But keep in mind that this is 63% below the $18 that the company was priced at when it was listed just over two years ago. Today, Enterprise explores this proposed privatization with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia. We're getting into the possible reasons and implications, but we'll also examine how the firm compares to other public-listed Southeast Asian tech companies and whether this signals more potential privatization of recently listed public-listed companies ahead. Uh, Simon, earlier you were give us you gave us that razor comparison and how yep. even at the privatization level, um, along the way people lost money, right? If you bought it at the IPO, now the proposed acquisition price here, as I mentioned, while a significant premium to the closing price before the announcement, is still much lower than the IPO. Um, give us a sense of how the the potential implications here uh, to the shareholders of TDCX particularly those who invested at higher prices like the IPO price. Yeah. So, um, look, if this deal goes ahead, these shareholders are going to end up losing money, right? Mm. So they can choose to sell at this price and crystallize the loss and then move their money to something else. Now, of course, shareholders can say, you know what? I don't want to actually sell it at this price. I think that it's too low. So I'm going to say no, and I'm not going to take your offer. And that's it. But it's not so simple because there are rules governing, you know, these kind of privatizations and takeovers. Now, TDCX is listed in the Cayman Islands, and I'm not an expert on, you know, Cayman Island law, so I'm not going to, you know, um, speak about that. But I can tell you from Singapore's perspective, and I don't think the differences, you know, between the jurisdictions are that far. What happens in Singapore is that if you get 90% of shareholders to actually agree to um, the deal, then you can squeeze out the remaining 10%, basically force them to sell, right? Um, of course, there are issues about, you know, should then 90% include the major shareholder? And even in Singapore, you know, there are some issues with that. So I don't want to go into that. But basically, the idea is that even if you don't want to sell, you may be forced to, if they can hit a certain threshold, basically you get squeezed out. Right. And I think Cayman has that as well. And um, alternatively, right, potentially, uh, you don't sell. But if they manage to delist the company, then you have shares in a company that's not listed. And do you really want to do that? You know, how many shareholders want to hold on to shares in a company that's not listed? So I think in this case, given the, you know, extent of the shares that he really controls, um, I'm not sure if, if existing shareholders have that much of an option. Right. So those who did, go in at a higher price, yeah, they, they may end up losing money. Um, and that's right. That's, that's no one, um, caveat mTOR, right? Buy everywhere. Mm. Uh, and, and, and Mr. Judic is not under any obligation to, to make sure that the shareholders are made whole uh, from their investments. Now, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, when Michael Dell uh, took Dell public, he got the backing of a private equity firm, Silverlake, that financed that deal. Uh, yes. Do we have any indications as to how this yeah. uh, deal will be financed? 
Yeah, so um, he has said that he will do so from a combination of existing cash, his own existing cash, and a debt facility. So a debt facility can be a loan from a bank. Nowadays, there are many like providers of uh, loans right, for these kind of things. There's this thing called private credit now, which is basically private equity firms that are lending money. Hmm. Um, and they're lending money is... It's a bit different from, you know, them being involved in the deal, like the way Silver Lake works, because then they'll put in equity. And if I'm not wrong, um, I remember seeing somewhere that, you know, he said that he's not currently working with anyone, but that could change, right? When he actually makes the offer. Um, if you look at Razor again, they worked with CVC Capital Partners, Michael Dell worked with Silver Lake. Potentially, he could bring in a private equity partner or investor that wants to partner with him, take the business private. Obviously, this investors are a lot more sophisticated. They will be comfortable dealing with private non-listed holdings. So remains to be seen, but yeah, it could be a loan. It could be a partnership. So we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I think back of the envelope math here indicates that um, this could cost maybe around 130 to $150 million uh, to take the company private, to buy the outstanding shares at $6.60. But again, still yeah. proposed, still in the works. Uh, we're not even sure if it's going to happen, so we'll wait yeah. and see how that plays out. Um, Simon, typically, based on other examples that we brought up, uh, how are privatizations typically financed or funded? So we've talked about PE firms. Are there anything else, anything no. interesting? Um, yeah, I can. I was actually um, working on um very infamous <laughs> privatization um, in Singapore. I don't know if you all know this company called Osim. It's, uh, they make massage child. Uh, yes. With other people as well. So Osim was listed in Singapore and they were privatized by their founder, Ron Sim. And so, yeah, Ron had um, his own money, of course, but he also borrowed uh, from, at the time, Credit Suisse. <laughs> Bless their hands when they were still around, uh, you know, lend him the money, um, part of it to do the deal. Um, so that that could be another, another source of money. The investment banks, uh, you know, will actually extend money to... Um, the offer raw to help them take, take, take their company's private. Now, I know you've done a bit of work on the uh, analysis of TDCX's performance in terms of revenue and growth and how it compares to other yeah. uh, companies in the region and BPO firms. Uh, yeah. what, have you, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, just to clarify, right, the, the firms I've looked at, the comparable firms, um, they, they are like listed in the US and they may not be really in the region, but I think you know, from a global perspective, mm. I think the BPO business is pretty global in that way. So I'm comfortable, you know, looking at other US listed firms. So I just, you know, took like four, right? TTEC, Huff, Us, Telis, and another one called Teleperformance. I think three are listed in New York, one is listed in France. And if you look at the average, okay, um, the revenue growth year on year uh, for 2023, this is based on their guidance for the year, is um, going to grow about 1%. So not... Um, big growth. I think there are good reasons for that. A lot of companies are actually shrinking their budgets, you know, or laying off workers. So in terms of BPO, you know, it's going to affect them as well for sure. So very sluggish, you know, close to zero revenue growth, adjusted EBITDA margin of about 6%. That's the average of the four I took, okay? Um, some are negative, uh, you know, some are higher, but that's the average. TDCX, uh, 2023 revenue guidance, around 3% year-on-year growth. So, you know, Somewhere there, a little bit better. Adjusted EBITDA margin, though, 25 to 27%. So actually a lot higher than the, the average of 6 
of those other four companies. So I would say that, you know, amongst these companies, TDCX is doing pretty well. And and that might be a reason why um, he wants to privatize it because I'm doing better than the average, but my share price uh, is not, um, does not recognize that. So oh, why bother if I can take it private? Why bother with the public market? I guess that, that, as you mentioned earlier, and this is not something that's atypical with privatizations is you believe your intrinsic value or the value of the firm is worth more than what the public market is giving you. So yeah. you take it private and yeah. wait for hopefully a better time to go to the market or you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. manage it in the situation that doesn't require so much uh, compliance and dealing with analysts until that. Especially, right, um, yeah. with founders. Don't forget, right, he's the founder of TDCX. I think founders, the firms are always their babies, right? Mm. If you're just a professional CEO, I think it's also personal. I think with founders, it's always so much more personal. <laughs> And, you know, I think Lauren Juni actually ran TCX sole shareholder for many years until, until IPO. So I think he's used to having that complete, like, control, right? Um, and and so all the more, if you look at all these things we're talking about, Michael Dell, Razor with Min Liang, Osim with Ron Sim, they're all the founders. Yeah, yeah. and um, again, uh, we can only speculate as to the true, uh, the true reasons behind this. But, you know, a lot of, uh, if we look at the past, there are a lot of, kind of similarities uh, to the deals when it comes to privatization. Now, um, before we go into a few more messages, uh, Simon, uh, in what ways do you think the privatization will benefit uh, TDCX strategically and operationally? Yeah. So I think, you know, firstly, management can just focus on running the company. You don't have to worry about your quarterly earnings, your earnings calls, all of that. Uh, secondly, there are, you know, benefits to having an investor, whether it's um, Mr. Junik himself or if he has partners who focus on the long-term, if you look at a lot of these analyst calls, I looked through some of the TDCX ones, they really are very focused on, oh, last quarter, what you did. You know, if you're lucky, they will ask you about the year ahead. But many companies are actually planning in terms of year ahead. And I think in the public markets, unfortunately, most sell-side analysts and all that, they're very short-term focused. It's like about the quarter. And we are guilty of that as well, I could say, uh, attack in Asia when we analyze these companies. Because, we look at the quarters, right? But I think the founder, the people actually operating the company, they are looking way beyond that. So to not have to do any of that, I think is a benefit. And thirdly, you know, um, there is this idea that you don't have to disclose as much information, obviously, if you are not um, publicly traded. Although nowadays, I, I find company disclosures very like, like bare anyway, to be honest. Like a lot of companies, I put it this, just disclosing the bare minimum sometimes. And so I don't know how 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 much a competitor can actually glean that they wouldn't already be able to to get from somewhere else. That's just my my thinking. Simon, we're going into a few messages when we come back. We'll talk a little bit about whether you see whether this could indicate a broader trend of privatizations here in Southeast Asia. Folks, you're listening to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. Today, we're exploring the proposed privatization of Singapore-based and New York Stock Exchange-listed TDCX with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia. Among other things, we're exploring the possible reasons and potential implications behind privatizations. And we're also talking about how the firm compares to other public-listed Southeast Asian companies or other public-listed BPOs and whether this signals potentially more privatizations ahead. I'm Roshan Karnison. We'll be back in just a bit. So keep it here at BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Broking Financial Mergers, BFM 89.9.
89.9. BFM 89.9, I'm Roshan Kanditsen and welcome back to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. Singapore-based and New York Stock Exchange-listed TDCX kick-started 2024 with the announcement that its founder and CEO wants to take the company private again by acquiring all the shares that he doesn't own at a proposed price of $6.60 per share. While representing a 36% premium to the closing price before the announcement was made, it is 63% below the $18 the company was listed at per share when it went public over two years ago. Today, Enterprise explores the uh, proposed privatization with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia. Among other things, we're getting into the possible reasons and implications of this privatization with some comparisons. Earlier, we talked about Razor and Michael Dell as well. Uh, we also compared BPO operators across the globe. Now, we're going to be taking a look at whether this signals more potential privatizations ahead, as well as look at the Southeast Asian tech market as well. Um, so, Simon, do you see the privatization or the potential privatization of TDCX as an indicative of a broader trend among Southeast Asian companies? Yeah. In a word, no, I don't. Although that can always change. But at this point, I don't. And and there are a few reasons for that. I think, number one, the TDCX situation is quite unique. Um, there are a few factors that you can't find elsewhere. Firstly, Junique already owns 86% of the company, right? And the company is not a huge company. It's about 900 million market cap, a billion market cap. So that's much smaller than C, many over billion, you know, Grab is somewhere at like 13 billion. So it's going to be a lot easier to take a 1 billion company private when you already own 86% of it. So I think that is the first point, right? That it is quite a unique situation. Um, and secondly, I think if you look at um, Property Guru, for example, that's another Southeast Asia tech firm listed in the US. Now, it's actually even smaller than TDCX. So it's about 600 million market cap. And you have three main shareholders, two PE firms, KKR and TPG, and News Corp, the, um, the media company. Together, they own sizable amount of the company. I, I can't remember the exact figure now off the top of my head. Um, but... The point is that there are three of them, right? So it's not so simple as one person saying, I'm going to do this and go ahead with it. When you have three major shareholders, yeah, they own 74% collectively. Um, they need to agree, you know, to to what they want to do and stuff. And so that's not that's not so easy. So that's why I don't I don't see I don't see this being more widespread, especially in um, a higher interest rate environment where borrowing money um, costs a lot more. Um, and outside of this, you know, whether there's a ripple effect into the privatization, do you see a wider impact from TDCX's privatization on the broader tech ecosystem and startup culture here in Southeast Asia? Yeah. Um, no, I don't. Um, uh, because I don't I don't see TDCX uh, as a core mm. company. No shade to TDCX. Obviously, you know, a uh, it's to have built that company it's, it's amazing but it's not at the core right the, the BPO is like quite ancillary I think in terms of uh, what the products and service offered as well as in the ecosystem right it's not a drag it's not a C 
So I, I don't think there's going to be big like implications or impact on the um, broader like ecosystem in the region. Yeah, sure. And you know, uh, it's earning season, or it's just about to be earning season. As someone who watches and analyzes the space closely, particularly Southeast Asian public listed tech companies, um, what is your current assessment of the current state of uh, public listed tech companies in Southeast Asia? Yeah. So um, my own view is that for now, um, I think obviously interest rates are key. So everyone's watching what happens to interest rates and when when the cuts are going to come and how by how much, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty around that. In this environment, um, I think the valuations will continue to be sluggish until these tech companies and even the big ones like Grab and C can show consistent profitability. If you look at C, for example, that's a very good example where they really cut costs. They managed to, for the Shopee business, you know, become profitable on an EBITDA basis. But because of pickup shop coming into the region, they had to up their investment and spending again. And then that, you know, caused investors to panic and send their shares back down again. So the environment is really dynamic and fast moving. And I think um, we used to assume that the dominant companies would be able to take advantage of that and become profitable. But it seems like that may not be the case because you have incumbents coming in and disrupting the market, even for dominant companies. So I think until they are able to prove right that they are profitable beyond just like one or two quarters, the valuations are not likely to change that much, right? And I also think that if you look at, you know, C and Grab, um, they are not really on the forefront of what is really of interest to investors right now, which is Gen AI and everything about Gen AI. Um, that may change, obviously, going forward, but they don't have that sexy story for now, um, which is, yeah, uh, I think what a lot of these companies are trying to do it may not be a good thing in the long term because if you're actually not, um, if Gen AI is not called your business and, and you try to sell it as, as is, you'll be found out at some point, right? So I'm not saying that they should start to like <laughs> uh, pivot or anything, but it, they're simply not the flavor of the of, of the month. Um, so yeah, I don't see the situation changing dramatically or improving dramatically. Of course, once interest rates fall and, you know, if there are considerable cuts, um, that may change, but it's very hard to say, right? Because we may have big interest rates cuts because economy is doing very badly. And then in that case, how well their stocks do? Um, Simon, the earnings season is upon us. Which companies yeah. are you watching in particular here for the German yeah. quarter and why? Yeah. So I'm always looking at, you know, the core companies like Grab and C because obviously they are very important companies that we want to see how they're doing. Apart from that, I'm interested in seeing this company that listed in Singapore called 17 Live. I don't know if you, you, you have heard of it. It's a live streaming company. It's um, the first live streaming company to actually list in Singapore and it was done by a spec transaction, right? We in Singapore decided to open our market to specs. There were three of them. Two of them decided recently that they're not going to go ahead with a transaction because the market just doesn't make sense. Or one of them did, um, and they merged with a company called 17 Live. Unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been a very good deal for shareholders. So since the deal closed, the share price 
you know, has fallen by over 70%, wow. right? And um, I think that, like, it's actually really bad for the spec market in Singapore. And that's a whole other conversation, right? But uh, we decided to have this spec uh, thing because we saw that it was doing so well in the US. And so we're like, let's have it here. And yeah, you can debate the the merits of that kind of me too approach. But I would like to see what happens with the upcoming earnings um, because yeah, can they turn things around or is it just going to be downhill from here, which which will be very, very damaging for I think um, the 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 industry, uh, the, the, the spec like industry and, and the SGX as well. Yeah, the appetite for these uh, these SPACs, right, which, used, which was very hot uh, in 2020, 2021 uh, in particular. Uh, any particular expectations for this earnings season, especially with the, the core companies that you're watching? Yeah. Um, no, I think, you know, um, just looking, for example, at really um, the same trend line, I don't expect any big disruptions. And of course, this quarter will also be for the full year, so you get a nice view of how the companies have done in 23 versus 22. But I don't have any like particular expectations for, for any of the companies. Beyond earnings and potential IPOs, what else are you watching uh, in the Southeast Asian tech landscape this year? Yeah, so I think, you know, as with everyone else, um, watching Gen AI and specifically what uh, is happening with the LLMs, the large language models. Now, if you look at... Um, uh, Southeast Asia, a lot of um, companies as well as, you know, like the Singapore government, they're actually trying to work on um, developing large language models that incorporate more local languages, Southeast Asian languages, you know, Thai, Bahasa, Malayu, Bahasa, Indonesia. I think that'll be interesting. I think there's some debate as to, you know, do you really need this? Um, but there is this idea that we need to make, we need to have our own, right? We can't rely on what the Western companies are, are doing. So that's one area I'm looking at. Another interesting area I'm looking at are the Singapore, you know, companies. A lot of them are actually starting to break into the US market. So I think that's quite an interesting trend. Um, if you look at Asori, it's a Singapore online furniture retailer, and you look at their US uh, revenues, I think in two over years, they have 13x their revenues from the US. So that's quite interesting because it used to be that the US companies come here and sell their things here. And now it seems that some of our Singapore companies and startups are actually selling, you know, things in the US to the US market, which is which is a huge market. And so I'm looking at that. And the third one, you know, um, to add on a on a friendly note, I guess, is the opportunities um for the uh, you know tech data centers from closer integration of of uh, Singapore and Malaysia, right, with the Johor Special Economic Zone and all of that. Um, I'm very wary of these things because, you know, every few years you have these initiatives and then they, a new government comes in and mm. it's cancelled and, and all that. But I do think that, that that it makes a lot of sense, right, for, for Singapore and like um, Malaysia, especially Johor, to actually integrate a lot more closely. And what does that mean for the tech um, sector, right? So, for example, data centers, it might be a lot cheaper to locate a data center in, in Malaysia and, you know, some tech companies might want to locate their manufacturing in, in Johor and then, like, have their R&D, um, you know, the headquarters in Singapore. And we need to really be able to reduce, like, the um, choke points, right, which is really the crossing at yeah. 
if we can do that, I think that's really exciting. Uh, so that's that's a third area that 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 I would want to you know pay attention to and look at more closely. Uh, Simon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rashad. Folks, I was speaking with Simon Huang, Chief Analyst at Tech in Asia, and you've been listening to Enterprise Explores, the show where we help you navigate the ever-changing universe of business from the headlines to the bottom line. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can catch the podcast on our website at bfm.my or download the BFM app. You can also find our shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast players. Just look for Enterprise Explores. I'm Roshan Kynason. Keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.